Where's the beef? Why is my six count nugget a five count nugget? Where's my other nugget? You mean shrink it? Yes. <laughs> Significant shrinkage. So you you feel you were shortchanged? Yes. So apparently, if you reduce one dimension but you make it longer, then people perceive always the same size because we can't assess like volume. As Aaron Turner would say, this is how they get you. This show is all about separating height from fundamental change. I'm Paul Jarley, Dean of the College of Business here at UCF. I've got lots of questions. To get answers, I'm talking to people with interesting insights into the future of business. Have you ever wondered, is this really a thing? On to our show. A couple of weeks ago, I read an article claiming that for a variety of reasons, some companies were cutting back on the size of their offerings rather than increasing their price. I was intrigued, so I sent an email out to the faculty, and within an hour, I had 10 people who had volunteered to become part of a podcast on this subject. It made me think that shrinkflation was, at the very least, well, an academic thing. Conflicting schedules reduced the size of our panel from 10 to 5, but I have one economist and four associate professors of marketing with me today to talk about what's going on. Muge Kulu, Yael Zimak Ruger, Axel Stock, and Anad Krishmurthy all hail from our marketing department. Listen in. Before we get to shrinkflation, are we experiencing inflation right now? Yes, we are. So if you look at CPI inflation, it's called headline inflation. It has increased in the past three months. It went from below 2% to 2.6, 4.1. Now it sits at 4.6, uh, and then now it sits at 4.9, uh, which is considered uh, high based on the past three decades. And it's high compared to the Fed uh, implicit inflation target as well, which is 2%. So it is increasing. But we're in a really odd situation here. We've had an economy that's been largely shut down for a year that's coming back. Give me some sense of how much of this is sort of a supply chain issue and how much of it is due to other factors. Okay. Paul, companies had trouble from the supply end, also from the demand end. You know, like people just ran to the store and clean out the shelves for toilet paper. So like demand went crazy and suppliers shut down. First, China shut down, so, and there was a wave of shutdowns in different parts of the world, in different parts, different times throughout the year. And then logistics shut down. You know, there was a lot of trouble passing through the customs and borders shut down. There was a lot of challenges from both ends of the supply chain, from both the supplier sides from, and the demand side. Ulich agrees. Right. So that's how it started. I mean, it's the disruptions in supply chains. And we, we call this, like in economics, we have this um, Phillips curve. That's how we describe inflation. It has these two components, main components, cost push and demand pull. So on the, the supply chain disruptions affect the cost push side of things. And now we have all this uh, stimulus money and then infrastructure spending and also the normalization. So we're kind of finding our feet that means demand is picking up, so it's kind of pulling inflation. So we have both factors happening at the same time. There's a third component, which is inflation expectations. That seems to be still anchored at low level. The market thinks this is temporary. That is correct. If I'm facing rising costs or shortages in my inputs, I really have three choices. 
I can raise my price, but I have two other alternatives. One would be to substitute in a less expensive input. And that could be a quality reduction. Or in some cases, I can shrink the size of what I'm selling you, which is what we're going to call shrinkflation. But tell me a little bit about why companies would choose one or the other. And then talk to me a little bit about quantum pricing. So it really depends on if you have com competitors or not. So if you have close substitutes, a lot of competitors, then you can't afford to increase prices. So you have to make cuts uh, other places or you have to, as you say, uh, decrease the, either the quality or the quantity. These are companies that are doing this are mostly uh, in the food and beverage industry where they have a lot of competitors, where there's a lot of awareness or people pay attention to prices more so than they do to quantity. If because I, it's clumpy, right? You yeah, get so a I mean, if I'm buying a box of cereal that's uh, 15 ounces and I the company reduces to 14.5, it's the same box. I'm not going to notice that. Right? So I'm just going to pay attention to the price so they can do this. But we do live in the social uh, media age. So if the word gets out and it, uh, people, there's consumer awareness, I don't know how how much you can do this, how, how long you can keep this up. Quantum, quantum pricing, first of all, is these companies that sell multiple products. I mean, I sell multiple products and I um, place my products in these price ranges. So I, I have a bunch of things that I sell at $5.99. I have other things that I sell at $3.99. So instead of moving it from $3.99 to $5.99, I just adjust the quantity. Right? So I reduce the quality as you're saying. Ulich gave us a lot to unpack here. So I'm gonna ask my marketing colleagues to help me break this down. Ulich notes food as the most obvious place for shrinkflation. But can you give me a few other examples? Mugay? Like first class and business class and economy class seats in an aircraft. Still, we are talking about the size and the critical resource we are talking about is the aircraft space. You know, there has been airlines who offered all business in their whole of the aircraft, like 50 seats instead of 250. Right, so you can put 250 economy versus 50 business class. It is five times, it occupies five times the space. So which one is a better strategy is the company's decision given the profits per unit resource consumed. So that's a very critical aspect of the product that companies should really focus on. Like per unit profit may be high for uh, business class, but then you look at the amount of space it takes up from your aircraft, maybe economy, like selling five economy class seats may be more profitable. You know, the company should be careful about um, those kinds of decisions when they're making these product line, product mix menus. In an earlier exchange you and I had, and for our student listeners, right, increasing class sizes can be a form of form of shrinkflation, right? Exactly, exactly. To teacher-student ratios, amount of time you spend with a um, representative in a bank, you know, in a service environment, the time you can, you know, the resource, whatever the key resource is, whatever the expensive resource you're talking about, then how much of it is needed for each product becomes your decision maker. Anand, I thought I saw a recent article where... Walmart's thinking of eliminating all of its front-end personnel and just go to self-checkout. Is that a form of shrinkflation? What, what is the biggest expense on the floor? It is people. Walmart, as it is, has uh, very few people on the floor. If uh, much of it can be automated, then a lot of these cost savings can then result presumably in the low prices that Walmart's 
likes to tout anyway because Walmart is about low prices. That is not as big a deal for some of these other players where pricing is not their key differentiator. But with Walmart, it's always about pricing. What can they do to bring prices down in a world where costs are difficult to shrink? Shrink uh, labor, for example. That is the first way you can, uh, if a product shrinkage is not work, going to work, then you would look at shrinking on other expenses like labor. Uh, what what a, what a manufacturer is doing with shrinkflation is pretty much what Walmart or a retailer is doing with wages. Because when it comes to a retailer, um, nearly all the product you put on the shelf is made by someone else. So then when it comes to your own product, so to speak, it is your employee, labor force. And that is what you would uh, like to shrink. So in general, Anand, are people more uh, sensitive to price than they are changes in service or changes in packaging size? Yes, uh, they, they are. And there are a lot of uh, reasons why. The most obvious is that consumers tend to pay uh, attention to top line prices. They remember the price of the item. They do not remember the size or weight of the item. I can uh, ask you a simple question. What was the size of a uh, uh, canned vegetable, uh, a vegetable in cans? Uh, 15, 20 years ago, what was the weight? Do you remember anybody? It, it was 16 ounces. Why? It's a pound, right? 16 ounces isn't even, you know what it is today? Go to Publix and look, it's 14 and a half ounces. Every can of vegetables is 14 and a half ounces. Why haven't we heard about it? We are experts in the room. If we don't know that the package has shrunk from 16 ounces to 14 and a half over the last 15 years, how in the world are consumers who are mostly clueless about these things are going to figure this out? Consumers remember or at least pay attention to prices. They don't pay as much attention to product sizing. Ice cream, for example, there was a study on ice cream consumption in Chicago. But they found that consumers were four times as sensitive to changes in price as a package uh, size drops. Clearly, consumers notice that a lot more. I'm sure uh, uh, Yael in the room can probably talk about the behavioral aspect, but the primary argument is that cons- there's a lot of consumer processing uh, required uh, to keep track of sizes, et cetera. That uh, pricing is slightly easier to remember. Pricing is something consumers always look at. So it's slightly easier to process. Hence, that is the thing that consumers pay attention to. And that is what they are most sensitive to. JL, if you wanted to weigh in on this, are we yeah. going to see the dark side of marketing here? <laughs> the dark side, indeed. <laughs> so I agree with Anand that price is a high sensitivity item. And I also completely agree that we do not look at labels to understand how many ounces they are, what is a serving, how many calories. These are not things we bother ourselves with. However, we do perceive sizes and we do notice changes in sizes so perceptually so um, if you're going to engage in shrinkflation for example maybe lower the quantity in the bag but don't change the size of the bag so there's fewer ounces of chips in there but it looks like the same uh, bag just more air then uh, Anand is absolutely correct people won't notice because they don't read uh, what's on the package. However, if you shrink the package, they will notice and consistent with all the perceptual errors that we generally live under, we're going to see some perceptual errors here too. 
But this is actually really, really interesting. So when packages grow, consumers totally misestimate it. When McDonald's makes their drink 50% bigger, people estimate it grew by about 30%. That's why they also misestimate the calories in a bigger meal or a bigger serving of fries or a six inch versus they, they misestimate it, they underestimate it. But interestingly, when things shrink, consumers are pretty accurate. So if your package is going to shrink by half, consumers are going to estimate that it shrink by about in half. And they will associate that with the price to the extent that they know and remember the price. Then they will expect the price to drop with the package. So that is something you have to deal with when you're changing the packaging itself. When the shrinkflation is visually apparent, then that's something marketers have to deal with. So Axel, are, are there competitive pressures here as well? So I'm thinking, for example, firms that have more competitors might have to play different sorts of games than ones with fewer competitors. Yeah, as, as I have already said, uh, you know, consumers might not react to the uh, shrinkage because they don't notice the shrinkage. But when they start consuming, uh, then certainly one will notice, you know, I need another package to satisfy my overall consumption. So the way I see the market is, you know, there are different consumers with different uh, demands. So let's say we have some low demand consumers and we have some high demand consumers. So if the firm is basically shrinking the package, then our high demand consumers may have to purchase an additional package to satisfy their demand. Whereas the low demand consumers, they might be okay for them the price per package will increase, but actually the matching of their demand with the amount of product that is provided may actually be advantages. So for those consumers, it may actually be shrinkflation actually may provide an advantage, whereas the high demand consumers, they actually, uh, you know, they suffer. They may have to buy another package. They have to pay a higher price per unit. Uh, but this is basically not addressing your question exactly. I think competitive uh, uh, pressures uh, are certainly to be considered. So we can imagine that if one of the competitors uh, goes ahead and uh, shrinks their packages, then uh, what will happen in the competitive scenario is that those consumers who like the big packages will try, go to the competitor so the shrinkflator has an advantage with the low demand consumers. The, you know, the person, the competitor who stays with the current package size will have a demand uh, advantage with the high demand consumers. And now basically the question is, should the competitor move ahead and just match the package size? So there's a trade-off here because we are losing you know, with the high demand consumers, we are gaining with the low demand consumers. So it, it could be what we call a prisoner's dilemma could result where uh, all the firms lose or actually the opposite uh, could also result where all the firms gain, where price competition is reduced. And, uh, and now, you know, everybody's better off with smaller packages. But just in general, I think there are two effects. One is the price effect, which is negative for consumers. They pay a higher unit price. But then there's a quantity effect, which is basically advantages for those low demand consumers. They can better match 
they are the units that they uh, purchase with what they need to consume, that could basically be an advantage. Okay, I need to make sure we're speaking the same language here. When you talk about a low demand consumer, you mean someone who wants to consume a smaller amount of the product. Is yes. That- yes. The example I'm going to use here, the 100 calorie pack comes to mind as an example of this. And I'm willing to bet the people who are purchasing the 100 calorie package are paying more for it on a per unit basis than if they just got it in the bigger box. Am I, am I, am I right about this? And is that a low demand? Consumer, yeah, go ahead. I completely agree with Axel that some people prefer small quantities. And in fact, that creates an advantage for smaller packaging for certain products. And your 100 calorie pack is an excellent example because it's usually applied to indulgence products. So there are no 100 calorie packs for carrots, <laughs> but they are usually for Oreos. <laughs> And why? Because we know we can't control our own consumption of these indulgent goods, cookies, ice cream. So we, the manufacturer helps us control it by giving us a small package. And then we pay a premium for that control. The premium that you pay to buy 10 individual size, 100 calorie packs of Oreos over one package of Oreo. I mean, weigh them out at home, put them in little plastic baggies. But we know once we open that package, it's very hard for us to stop. And those little packages serve as a stopping point. And I think that's one of the ways from a behavioral perspective that marketers can think about how to position smaller packages as a good thing, as a service to the consumer, as an improvement and innovation in their product. If they fall into these categories, then they can actually leverage shrinkflation to both reduce the package size and increase the price, and sell an added benefit to the consumer. Guessing that Costco doesn't stock giant bags of 100-calorie packages. Would no, they, they do. They, they, cho- they, they have boxes of like 25 bags of small bags of chips, snack size. Maybe less a calorie consideration than a convenience consideration, but still which is another dimension that gives an advantage to a smaller package. But still, it would be cheaper to buy an enormous bag of veggie chips than 20 individualized bags. But people buy individualized bags and they pay a premium for them. Anand, go ahead. There are differences in terms of how retailers actually display unit prices. Costco is one of those stores that actually prominently displays the price per unit. Most stores do not. In fact, I think 30 or 35 of these states, there is not even a law mandating that unit prices be displayed. And in the 10 states that have laws, it is all over the place. I can give an example with tea bags. For example, the same retailer, let's say you have one brand A and brand B. Under brand A, you could say the price is 27 cents per bag. And brand B, you would say the price is $1.22 per ounce. So even within the same retailer, within the same product category, you could have many different ways in which unit prices are displayed. And if at of all the places we've shopped, Costco is probably the one that hits the unit pricing on the head in terms of prominently displaying it. Of all the times I've shopped at Costco, not once have I heard any consumer in the paper towel aisle debate choices of uh, brands or products based on the unit price. 
that is a store that puts the unit price in size for font size 40 then if consumers don't pay attention to that at costco why would they pay attention to that at Publix where the unit pricing is in font size too? There are other areas where actually per unit pricing is the norm. Let me give you two. A gallon of gas is a gallon of gas. And, and, and you see very little variance there. But I want Muge to comment on this because he's had, we had an exchange around this. Price per square foot in housing is a pretty common metric. Price square foot is actually a concave function. You know, the, the bigger the house, the price per square foot goes down. But when you buy a bigger house, the price goes up, but the marginal increase is lower uh, as you go bigger. And a real estate construction company, is it is really very challenging to make decisions because you have to do it well before you know anything about how much customers are willing to pay. You know, you, that is kind of a very scary, very risky industry. So one thing that we are looking at is how big these houses should be and should they have any flexibility? And what we find is flexibility is key. Product line flexibility, that's what we call it. You know, just the firm should be able to make changes as they go and plans. Yes, they buy the land, but if they, ha- they keep their options open, if they want a very large luxuries homes or just moderate, moderate houses, you know, or if they want maybe a big land and they will divide it into several subdivisions, are all of them going to be very luxurious? Are all of them going to be townhomes? Those are very different decisions. And the firm is flexible and keep their flexibility in terms of decision-making and not finalize anything ahead of time, three years ahead of time, that's much easier um, to survive when the resources are costly. Once again, land, when the land costs are significant, you know, if land is cheap, that's really, you can get away with it much easily. So I, I think we've established that shrinkflation is real, at least in the short so what are the macroeconomic consequences of that? If you're the Fed or the Treasury Department or the average consumer? On the macro front, uh, one of the concerns is that that might disrupt uh, labor markets. Because if I'm a company uh, that cannot increase my prices, then I can um, maybe decre- decrease my labor. And one way I can do that is to cut, cut my workers. Because at these low levels of inflation, I can't lower wages. I can't give you a cut. It's very hard for me to do that. Yeah. Instead of that, I lay you off or I make you work less hours or, you know, I decrease your benefits, allowances and things like that. Uh, so that's one concern. The second concern is about policy formulation. So to the extent that you can't pick these things up, the decreasing quantity, then inflation is not very informative for the Fed. Fed is the ultimate control over inflation, right? So, and if they cannot see... Uh, just, just focus on headline inflation only, then they can't see these uh, shrinkflation and so they can't uh, react to it. So that's one other complication to it. But do things ever reinflate? Anad, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, usually there is no incentive for a firm to unilaterally drop prices when inflation dies because uh, one, you're competing with other firms that I, as Axel pointed out earlier, there is no incentive. Uh, uh, what is the biggest expense for firms, as we talked about, wages? If you cannot drop wages, 
why would you then drop prices and get destroyed in terms of margins? So it's well known that prices are always stickier on the downside. That is, uh, uh, to put it in stock market terms, in the opposite of stock market terms, price increases take the elevator, price decreases take the stairs. Why would you unilaterally drop prices because your costs have gone down? Nobody else is doing it. And consumers are getting used to paying higher prices. Why then would you want to drop prices? If you're not seeing a whole lot of drop in demand, because the top line prices remain the same and your unit price has increased and your margins are better, why would you want to change that? Okay. Did you have something you wanted to add there? Yeah, I was going to talk about the airline industry and what happened during 2009 crisis, the size of the seats and how, you know, I was talking about those fully business class seats in the aircraft. It was the biggest hype before the crisis, you know, like 2006, 2007, all these, you know, Silverjet, EOS, all these airlines fully focused on the business class. And, you know, they were talking about inflation in seat sizes and the resource consumptions. And with the crisis, when the crisis hit, they all went out of business. They could not survive. They could not sell. And all those uh, airlines with full service, we call it the, all the cabins, they were able to rearrange their seat of seats and uh, remain in the business through those uh, years, very difficult years. And right now we started seeing all those biz- before the COVID, before the airline <laughs> industry went into this most recent crisis, we started seeing all business flights back in the air. So yes, they re, you know, during the crisis, they they disappeared all business class, and then after the crisis over, when the industry business cycle went back into their regular levels, then reinflation of the you know, let's say the product size reinflated back to the all business flights. Yeah. So it's about it's about customer value when you're all in a competing space and you have to generate some value proposition that's added to the consumer, right? You can do it in a variety of ways. You can innovate, have new products, add benefits, features, or you can make your package bigger. And sometimes that is a path of least resistance. I mean, we would not see the supersizing wars that we see, but let's remember that as you inflate, you have to inflate by that much more even just to return to the perception that you're the same as before, right? Because increases are underestimated. You return your package to how it was, but it doesn't seem like that's that much an increase. And because the reference point of what the old package used to look like, well, that's long gone. So we do compare. We compare across competitors. It's important to stay within the range of competition, but it's also a way to one-up the competition to increase your your package size, and we compare to the size we're most recently familiar with. When it's grown from that size, we're likely to think it's grown much less than it actually has. And there's ways to manipulate that. So for example, if a package grows on one dimension, we tend to be much more accurate than if it grows on two or three dimensions. If you're gonna make your package bigger and you want consumers to estimate it better, then grow it only on one dimension not on three, but the opposite occurs for shrinkflation. So if you're going to reduce your package, 
then consumers will become less accurate in estimating the reduction if you reduce it on all three dimensions rather than just one. Of course, then you risk that it's super noticeable that it became smaller. So one of the strategies that the literature really shows us is elongation. Apparently, if you reduce one dimension, but you make it longer, then people perceive always the same size because we can't assess like volume. You can use elongation to shrink. You can use elongation to reinflate. You know, we have perceptual tricks that we can use to help manage consumer perceptions to help them actually understand what they're actually consuming in part so they don't consume more than they need. Axel? So I, I want to uh, continue that discussion along those lines a little bit. Just as Yael mentioned, when uh, costs uh, are dropping, then firms tend to uh, want to offer more quantity, as at least as an option. And here, basically, we see like a the opposite effect of what I uh, pointed out earlier, which is now with those bigger sizes being available, consumers who initially have, uh, let's say, a low demand for the product, all of a sudden they are tempted to consume more than they initially wanted. And in the era of fast food can lead to very negative effects for the consumers like overconsumptions and the uh, negative health effects like obesity and so on and so forth. Final question. It's a year from now. Is there still pressure to shrink your packages or do you think shrinkflation will be something that will be a historical artifact? Start with you, Axel. I'm gonna... I think uh, it is still going to be potential firm strategy. In general, it's about firms are about offering menus of choices for consumers. Uh, and so as you can increase your menu, you can basically tailor to uh, more different consumers more precisely and potentially make more profit. Uh, so I think there's uh, still going to be uh, supply chain problems, maybe in other industries other than those that we have discussed today. And if firms can respond, if it's a category where you know package sizes can easily be shrunk, then that will happen at least for some time. Yeah, what do you think? From a marketing perspective, if Conditions are such that companies need to become wiser about their product lines and packaging and offerings. I would hope that we can see some more sophisticated marketing strategy. Product lines, right? Small, medium, large, which, by the way, is another way to manage perception of size, that we can see better segmentation, right? So when you talk about service level, that's size two. So when companies have these smarter strategies of thinking about how they allocate their resources, their size, their, as Muge aptly called it, their limited and precious uh, resource that they have, that's when we get more interesting things than just, is the package bigger or small? Anat? Well, shrinkflation, shrinkflation was with us uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, you, you look at... Uh, Canned vegetables, I talked about chocolate bars have shrunk in size. The curvature of bars of soap mm. has increased over time. Higher curvature, lower material, lower cost. Shrinkflation has been with us for a long time. Airlines started doing economy, limited legroom, more economy seats way before COVID hit. So the point is it's been with us way earlier than COVID was ever a phenomenon. And it is going to be with us 
far longer. Perhaps they may come up with a fancier term than shrinkflation, but the phenomenon is probably here to stay. Mugen. It all comes down to how you manage your supply chains. Supply line problems will, uh, will dissolve and will, uh, supply will meet up with demand. In that case, we'll have healthy levels of inflation. Companies will not have to resort to shrinkflation. It's my podcast, so I get to go last. Some of my colleagues didn't give me a straight answer on the future of shrinkflation. Academics frequently struggle with simple yes or no answers. Consumers, on the other hand, always prefer a menu of choices. But as Axel notes, choice can be expensive. If firms think their customers are more sensitive to price, they're going to find ways to cut corners and preserve margins. The real question in my mind is whether the consumer will be more or less price sensitive a year from now than they are today. I'm betting less. People's futures are coming into focus Consumers will become more acclimated to modest price increases, especially as supply chains work themselves out. And with a more robust job market, people are going to be willing to pay a little more to get what they want. As Anand notes, shrinkflation will never go extinct, but I don't think shrinkflators will become the defining feature of this century's roaring 20s. So what's your take? Check us out online and share your thoughts at business.ucf.edu slash podcast. You can also find extended interviews with our guests and notes from the show. Special thanks to my interim producer, Erica Hodges, who can't get rid of this gig fast enough. And the whole team at the Office of Outreach and Engagement here at the UCF College of Business. And thank you for listening. Until next time, charge on. Internet killed the video star.